Yes, Lord, thank you that we can be here, Father. Thank you that you are good, Lord. Thank you, Father, that you speak through, Lord, your body, Lord, your people. Father, thank you, Lord, that every single one sitting here tonight, Lord, has not been called to spectate, Lord, how the rest of the people obey, how the rest of the people build, Lord, how the rest of the people lead, Father, as you've called us to lead, to build, Father, and to shepherd your people and to build your kingdom here on this earth, Lord, until the day that you come back, Lord. Thank you for that every single one sitting here has a part to play, Lord, a gift that is indispensable, Father, that we need, Father. And thank you, Lord, that you can just come, Father, and show us, Lord, that it's not something to do with, Father, with, with who we are, Lord, or, or with what we can bring to the table, Father, or how, how courageous we are, Father, the amount of faith that we have. It's simply that which Renesia said, Lord, obedience to a great God. There are no great men and women of God, simply a great God who uses men and women to accomplish His will. And thank you for that, Lord. And we pray, Father, that tonight all of us might walk out of this room, Lord, with a greater revelation of who you are, a greater willingness to obey, Father, to bend the knee before the King, to go and display the glory of God to a sinful world, Lord, knowing that that glory was displayed to us. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice on the cross. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are here and working in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Cool, guys. Let's dive in. So we're going to continue with our sermon series, A Mile in the Shoes of. And today we're going to walk in the mile of some, uh, not, not like made-up shoes, but made-up shoes. Um, a story that was told in, in response to a guy coming to Jesus and asking him a question. And, and Jesus presenting the story of someone whose name is the Good Samaritan. So we're going to walk a mile in the shoes of the Good Samaritan. And our title for tonight is When the Heart is Tested. When Jesus Tests the Heart. And it's a passage that we're quite familiar with. And I think many of us have heard it many times. And there's a lot of lessons to be learned from the parable of the Good Samaritan. But to ask us the question now tonight is, what do you think the parable of the Good Samaritan addresses? Why is it there? What is it supposed to show us? What is it supposed to teach us? And I know that obviously there's already a title to the, to the sermon, but if you can avoid the, the title, what, what was your previous expectation of this passage? What is it showing to us? And the reason I'm asking us the question is so that we can start asking the right questions regarding certain passages of Scripture. Many times we approach Scripture and we ask, you know, what does it say to us? But it wasn't primarily written to us, it was written for us, but to a group of people. And to get to the heart of it, you know, what is the Scripture trying to explain? What is God saying through His words? Very important for us. And there's a lot of things that people have preached on when they preach about this passage, you know, how to be good neighbors. I don't know if you want your neighbor to hear a, a sermon about how to be a good neighbor. Let me see some hands. Yes, yes. People, people want them to know. But that's been huge, you know, how to care for the people around us. Yes, it shows that principle. Yes, it gives us an example of costly compassion. How to care for the people with our time, our finances, our possessions, you know, a heart that really feels for the people around us. Yes, we can learn that from this passage. It's something that's displayed. Well, who is our neighbor? A lot of stuff to be learned, but the parable addresses a question that was asked to Jesus. That is what the parable is trying to explain. That is why the text is there. It's because a man came to Jesus and asked him a question. 
And the discourse that follows is the answer to this question. And we many times do that with scripture. There's another example of people coming to Jesus. And they ask him the question, why does the disciples of John fast and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Then we would expect the rest of the text to explain the answer to the question. And there's a lot of things that Jesus then says, you know, he speaks about this piece of clothing, this garment that is old and it has a tear. Nobody patches a new piece of cloth on an old garment, otherwise a greater tear will be made. Nobody puts new wine in old wineskins. Otherwise it bursts and it falls to the ground. But new wine is for new wineskins, you know, and people focus on the wineskins and focus on the garment. But we have to answer the question. And there's a lot of truths to be learned, but we have to see the general truth of this passage. With that in mind, let's read through this passage and see what we can learn and see what the question is that is actually being asked here tonight. Luke 10, from verse 25 to 37. One day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? There's the question. Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant, or a Levite, walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus says, yes, now go and do the same. So here we see this passage unfolding and there's a question asked primarily in the beginning. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And the passage finishes with the words, yes, now go and do the same. The question was answered. The question given, explained. So let's dive into the question and see what we can learn here. We read here in Luke 10, 25 to 28. And the funny thing is the man comes to test Jesus. But obviously Jesus being God knows how to reverse a test quite quickly. And I don't know if the man notices this. Being a bit puffed up with knowledge. About halfway through the discussion he realizes, okay, the test has turned around. The focus is not Jesus anymore, but the focus is now me. And he wanted to test Jesus and he asked the question, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? So the same question with which he wanted to test Jesus, Jesus is testing him with now. 
And the story is reversed. I don't know about you, but I find it quite, quite funny. But then it goes on to say, and here's the man's answer. The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting? It's so, so interesting. You know, at first glance, it doesn't seem weird to us. You know, we read the passage and it makes sense. Love God with everything in you. Love your neighbor as yourself. But it's not quite the answer we expected. Shouldn't Jesus have said, no, you cannot do anything to inherit eternal life. Simply believe in me. Anyone with me? Shouldn't that be the right answer? Scripture doesn't say, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son so that those who love God with everything and their neighbor will inherit eternal life. It says so that those who believe in him will inherit eternal life. Isn't it interesting? But to rephrase the question, if someone were to come to you tonight and ask you the question, what must I do to be saved? What will your answer be? Believe in God. Have faith in Jesus. We know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We know that. And what did Peter and Paul write when they wrote to the churches? How are we to inherit salvation? All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Salvation is a gift of God. It's by grace, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. It's a gift of God. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy with which he saved us. So why is there something to do now? And to understand that question and to understand why Jesus says, yes, your answer is right. Go do this and live. We have to understand the man that Jesus is speaking to in the context. Expert in religious law. And for the context that we are living in, it's so, so valuable that we understand this principle because we're living in a time of a lot of experts in religious law. And by that I mean traditional religion people. Don't really know the word so well, but they know tradition well. They know the church lingo, they know the right things to say. And what Jesus is basically saying, he's saying that this is what faith in God looks like. It's inseparable. Someone that really comes to salvation, that has saving faith, will have a love for God and a love for people. It's inseparable. Scripture says we cannot have that. And so we don't have love. If we believe in God, if we've truly been born again, we will love because God is love. It needs to be that it's inseparable. What would the man's answer have been if Jesus told him you need to believe in God? He would have just simply said, yes, I do. I believe. John 3.16, I believe. But what is the evidence of that? How does that look like, that saving faith that you profess to have? Because we read in 2, Chronicles, or 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5, and it says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith test yourself do you not see this about yourself that Jesus is in you if not you have failed to meet the test test yourself how do I test myself how do I know if I believe and scripture says you will have a love for God 
and a love for people. It's inseparable. You cannot say you truly believe. Without that being in your life, there needs to be a change that happens that day that you call upon his name. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, but all one Christ is a new creation. Behold, look, see. The old has passed away. The new has come. There's something that we understand, you know. James 2, verse 17, faith without works is dead. That faith cannot save you. It doesn't say we are saved because of the works that we do. It just simply says that when we believe and God pours out his spirit upon us, the love of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit compels us to live a life of obedience. We cannot say we believe in him, have new life, have been born again, are led by his spirit, compelled by his love and filled with his grace, yet remain the same. It's impossible. Good things will start to flow out. In fact, you know, a lot of things in the Christian life, we cannot even understand it without a heart that is willing to obey. In one of our SADS courses, when, in studying theology, the subject hermeneutics, the interpretation of scripture, they give a couple of steps, a couple of heart positions, prerequisites that you have to have if you want to truly understand scripture correctly. One is obviously you have to be saved. We need to be filled with the Spirit, for we did not receive the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit of God, that we might freely know the things given us by God. The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians, from verse 10 to 17. We know this. 1 Corinthians 2, sorry. So we have to be filled with the Spirit, but the other one is a heart that is willing to obey, obedience. Because I either will pursue the Scriptures with a heart willing to obey it, and so align my life with the truth when I see it's out of line. Or I will approach scripture with a heart that is set on justifying myself. And I will bend the scriptures to suit my own needs. If we are not willing to obey, we will rarely understand the scriptures as we should. It's something that we have to note. And it's at this point when the religious law expert realized the test has been turned around. And wanting to defend himself, wanting to maybe say something to Jesus, he's trying hard to think of an example when he truly loved his neighbor. Because Jesus says, go do this and live. And you can think of that man at that moment. He wants to, with all that is in him, give an example. No, I'm doing this. I'm actually living it out. And he just simply can't think of a great example, or maybe one that's not recent enough. And realizing that, he says the following. Luke 10, 29. The man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Not wanting to justify his knowledge, the faith that he proclaims to have, but his actions, the inability for that faith to produce what it should. Wanting to justify it. And he says, who's my neighbor? And what he's basically asking is who's worthy for me to go and give them my love? Who's worthy? Maybe I'm not the problem. Maybe the people's the problem. Maybe they're just unlovable. We live in Secunda, so we know what the guy's saying, right? I mean, those of you who know me way back when, we understand what the guy's saying more or less, in a sense. Maybe the problem is with the object of love. Maybe the people are just unlovable. And then every single time I read this passage, I'm so, so glad that there was someone that did not ask this question. And that is Jesus. Can you imagine 
Jesus standing in heaven and the Father is about to send the Son to come and pay for the sins of the world. And Jesus says, yes, I'll go, but first tell me who is worthy. Who's worthy? By the way that they live their lives, or who will be worthy by the way that they're going to live their lives for the sacrifice that I'm about to make? The question would have been no one. And Jesus would not have come. And we would still have the problem that we had. Inability to draw near to the Father because of the brokenness and sinfulness of man. Without the substitution of a loving God. So, so glad Jesus didn't do that. Ask that question. And he comes and he shows us unconditional love, unconditional forgiveness for sinful man. And we know that Jesus doesn't entertain the man's question by trying to explain to him, no, you know, it's not the, the people or trying to define to him, no, it's not really what I meant, neighbor, not just like the four people around you, it's not what we mean. We mean the people around you, you're supposed to have a love for people in general. Wooden literalism, you know, going on here. If I see him, Gertal, I love him, but Brian, he's three houses away. Sorry, buddy, you're not my neighbor. Not called to love you. So Jesus doesn't speak about that, but he gets to the heart of the problem. And the question isn't trying to teach us, or this passage isn't trying to teach us who our neighbor is, or how specifically we are to love the people around us. It's asking the question, but is the faith that you say you have leading you to be more like Christ? Is it simply information, or is it actually transforming your life? Because if there's an earnest to God, and a revelation of his truth, it will bring change. It can do nothing else, but it will bring change. And then supposed to be changing a process of holiness that grows throughout our life. Yes, a, a great one. Essentially, when we give our lives to God, and yes, we'll fall back every now and again, and we'll have better days, and we'll have worse days. But at the end of the year, at least there should be some growth so that I look a little bit more like Jesus. And the information comes and God comes and does a work to transform me to the image of his son. So the question we want to ask ourselves is where then should this growth take place? How does it start? If I want to grow, if I want to grow closer to God, if I want to look a little bit more like Jesus, where does it start? What, what is the areas of growth? How does it happen? And we find that answer in the man's answer to Jesus. <clears throat> it says in Luke 10 verse 27, how are we to love the Lord? We must love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, and all our mind, and love our neighbors ourselves. That and links parallel passages together. It's inseparable. It doesn't go without the other. We read in the book of First John. How can you say that you love God but yet hate your brother? It simply cannot happen. Those two things are inseparable. They go together. But we read there with your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. If you want to sum it up, we need to love God with our head, our heart, and our hands. With everything that we are, head, heart, and hands, we are to love God and love the people around us. And it usually starts there at the head. That is why Colossians 3 verse 10 says, Put on the new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. The New Living Translation. And I love how it just says there, you know, the aim of our learning is to know God, not just knowledge of but intimacy with the God that we serve so that we can not only know him but become like him. Like Paul wrote in Philippians 3, that I might know him and become like him. That is the goal. That is what we're working towards, to know God 
and to become like Him. And many times it doesn't start at, at the head. You know, God comes and does something and when we are near to Him, He comes and changes our hearts and He gives us passion for certain people or certain places. Now, I make the joke this morning, like me and Robin, we have an, a passion to go to Hawaii. We don't know why. Just making a joke, by the way. Everybody knows why people want to go to Malawi. But we want to go to Madagascar. We don't know why. It's just a compelling thing that we have. And we want to go and serve that people. We don't know why. But God has placed it on your hearts. And maybe you can identify with that. God has called out certain things in you. He's given you passions for certain things. Do not ignore those things. He's given you gifts so that you can pursue them. And do what God has called you to do. God is not weird like that. you know, Giving you passions for certain things. And then calling you to do something else. Except if your passion is to sin. Obviously don't do that. But he's given you passions to do certain things. And we know that of God. But many times as the transformation process happens, it starts with the knowledge. That's why I also want to encourage everyone to do Bible school. And it's where it starts. To give you guys an example, maybe there's someone in your life and there's this person and they irritate you a little bit. And you're not quite sure why they do what they do, why they say what they say, why they act the way they act. Maybe there has been a person like that. You just don't know why is this person doing what they are doing, saying what they are saying, and acting the way they are acting. It irritates me. It frustrates me a little bit. You know, you want to say that. And then all of a sudden, someone comes and tells you, or they come and tell you, you receive knowledge of what this person has been through in life, or what they are going through at the moment, or the circumstances that they are facing. All of a sudden, your heart changes. I didn't know. And you have compassion towards them, even so much so that it leads you to serve them in a practical way. And there we see that pattern, knowledge, leading to conviction, flowing out in servitude. That is the way that it happens. God comes and shows us certain things. It starts here with knowledge. We read in Romans 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Change the way that you think. Allow the word of God to come and shape your thoughts. And this is also the easiest part. Well, it used to be. In today's life, it's many times the most difficult part. We are so, so distracted with so many things. So many series. So many social media apps. And we just can't seem to stop scrolling. We just go on and on and on. We don't have time for the Word of God. But this is where it starts. That's why I want to encourage you. Do Bible school if you can. That takes us to point number one tonight. Allow the Word of God... To shape your thoughts. Allow the word of God to shape your thoughts. And the reason I allow it to shape your thoughts is because we can come to the word of God and we can not allow it to shape. We cannot allow it to change. We can be stubborn. We need intellectual humility when approaching God's word. And the reason how we do that is to approach it and be honest when we are wrong. When I see something in the word of God that I didn't agree with, that I thought differently about, that I saw in a different way, I need to first acknowledge I did not see or know or understand this thing right. I need to see it different now. We live in a generation where being wrong is, you know, one of the most awful things that can happen to a person, it seems. Nobody wants to be wrong. And when you speak to people and they say something wrong or that's weird or it doesn't seem quite right and someone says, I know that's actually not right, it actually works this way. Then the reply is not, thank you for helping me. The reply is, yeah, that's what I meant actually. I don't know if you've realized that. Eindelijk wat ek bedoel het. 
And I spoke to Henny last week, and this is a tip, you know, we need to do this, guys, especially as people that are called to go and carry truth into a broken world. If someone says something strange or funny or that doesn't align with truth, check first. Ask them, this thing that you said, you said it like this, do you believe that? And if they say yes, then you say, well, that's wrong. It's actually this way. Well, this is how I see it. Let's, let's see together, let's reason together, let's read together to see what is actually truth, because truth is exclusive. It's not many options to truth. It either is or it isn't truth. But to taste that with people. We read in 2 Corinthians 10 from verse 4 to 5. You can go and read that on your own. It says, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God for destroying strongholds, for casting down every argument and thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing it obedient to Christ. Because we spiritual warfare starts with knowledge. Seeing the things around us coming in and realizing, no, but this thought, this argument, it's exalting itself against the knowledge of God. It's not in line with God's truth and I will bring it obedient to the word of God. And if we cannot do that in our own lives, we will struggle to do it in the world out there. That is where we start. Allow the word of God to come and shape your thoughts. And this is normally where we get stuck a little bit. We get stuck here with information. It doesn't lead to transformation. And because we live again in a generation where we think what we know is who we are. It's not the case. We are not what we know. We are what we eat. We know that. We are what we do. We are what we habitually do. Over and over again. That is what we are. And we need to allow information to shape and to come down so that it can become belief and so that belief can turn into conviction and so that conviction can be the way we live our lives. Nobody can change that. It's what God has placed in us so that the love of Christ compels us because we have come to the realization that one has died, therefore all has died. That is a conviction. That is information that moved to belief, that turned into conviction as God gave grace and we are now living by faith. We need that type of living. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14. Beautiful thing. So the question we need to ask ourselves is how then do we go from knowing to willingly doing? Because we saw that in the life of Ezra and Nehemiah. We can obviously beat people, pull out their hair and make them take an oath to do certain things, but that doesn't work. It's a temporal revival. It's not the way we need to do things. So how do we move to that place? How do we change our hearts? Because heart change is what we need. Look at this following passage. And then you see the difference. There's five words that make the difference between two people who knew the right thing to do but failed to do it and one man who did it in any case. There's five words that's the difference between seeing and going or seeing and passing by the other side. We read Luke 10, 25 to 34. By chance a priest came along, but when he saw the man laying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. <clears throat> a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. The two people that's supposed to represent God best, that knows the law of God by heart. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, here's the five words, he felt compassion for him, going over to him. That's the change, feeling compassion for him, a heart that feels a heart that loves. The problem is in the heart of man. It's not in knowing the right thing to do or not. 
but it's in having that information that we receive moved down so that it turns into belief and conviction. So that when we see, we can feel. Now I want to ask us a question tonight. Because whose heart does that verse 33 represent? It's the heart of Jesus. We see it in Luke 3, Matthew 9, John 11, Mark 10. Jesus looking to the crowds and he has compassion on them because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but first he weeps with them because he has compassion. And the question that I want to ask us as we're sitting here tonight is when we look at the brokenness of the world around us and the people caught and all kinds of things, the lack of identity, people just don't know where to go. What is truth? In a world of relativism, when you see that, what do you feel? Because what we are supposed to feel is compassion. Looking and seeing and realizing that it's only the gospel that can make this right. It's only the truth of the word of God that can come and heal a broken heart. Or do we feel like, leave them to themselves. There's no help. Not realizing that we had no help until God's grace came. We were also there. And in many areas we still are. But yes, Yet the grace of God is new every morning. Yet his mercies are new every morning. Yet we can still draw near every morning. What is the feeling that you feel when you see the brokenness of this world? Because if it's not compassion, then we need a heart change. There's only one thing that invoked Jesus to anger. And that is the religious people pretending that they are something that they are not. And the people that are supposed to carry truth that place burdens on people's shoulders that they themselves are not willing to bear. That's the only thing that provoked him to anger. But when he saw the crowds, he had compassion. May we be a people of compassion. So here's the question. How do we then change our hearts? Can we change our hearts? The answer is no. No, we can't. We can't change our hearts. That's also the end of sermon tonight. We can't. Let's go. Fortunately, it's not the end of the sermon. There's one who can change our hearts. And every single time that we are near to him and information and truth comes, it will transform us to look a little bit more like him. Look at what Ezekiel 36, 26 and Titus 3 says. And look at who is doing the work here. God speaking. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Titus 3 verse 5, he saved us according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And the lesson that we learn here is just because we know certain things about God doesn't mean we are close to God. Doesn't mean we are yielded to him. Doesn't mean we are surrendered to him. Just because we know the right things to say. Because if we are close to God, and truth comes, it will transform us. If we abide in him and he abides in us like Ham came and shared last week, a couple of weeks ago, we will bear much fruit. Not we can or we might or someday perhaps by chance we will. No, it is that bears much fruit. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, but we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of God as in a mirror are being transformed to the same image from one degree of glory to another this comes from the lord who is the spirit we are being transformed as we look on the glory of god in the pages of scripture the glory of god and the gospel of jesus christ 
if we are close to him and yielded to him, change will come. Like Paul says, this is a circumcision not made by human hands. It's a circumcision of the heart that God comes and does. He's the only one that can do it. That takes us to the last point. Let God shape your heart. Let God shape your heart. I mean, many times when I think about this, you know, and seeing the beautiful words of God in Scripture, I don't sometimes understand how reading the Word can lead to something else than prayer. How is it that we see the wondrous goodness of God in Scripture and it doesn't lead to worship Him in prayer, lifting up His name? How is it that we see the goodness of God for us and it doesn't lead to praise? How is it that I don't see my own brokenness and sinfulness in Scripture as I read and I do not fall to my knees and ask God, Lord, help. Come and change. Come and renew. Come and do what you can come and do because I can't. When we read the truth of God's word in Scripture and we see how broken we are and we see how fall, how short we fall, but we are confronted with the grace of God, how can we do anything else but call out on God? But I will call upon your name all the days of my life because you incline your ear to me. God who listens to the prayers of broken men, how do we not call upon his name every day? He's the only one that can come and save, can come and change. Come and allow God to do what only He can come and do. I'm going to leave us with these two verses. It's the only two things that remain. Luke 10, 28 and 37. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy, then Jesus says, yes, now go and do the same. The only thing that's left to go and do. And I want to challenge us like Renier said as well. God comes and he does a shaping process as we obey him. As we go out. To say, Lord, that many times I don't feel like it. I don't want to, but I'm going, Lord. And as I'm going, won't you come and change? Won't you come and convict? Won't you come and shape my heart? But I'm going in any way. Some of us are stuck at the doing part. We know what to do. Just lack the obedience to go and do it. And we see people lying next to the road, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Go and do. Go and love well. The most loving thing you can do to anyone, especially to a broken world, is to go and proclaim the message of the gospel and to go and make disciples of nations. There's not a more loving thing that you can do than that. Most loving thing you can do. Go and do that. And some of us, because of COVID, and because we're working from home and we don't get out that much, we need to go and do we're not going anymore so therefore we're not seeing we're not seeing the crowds that is in need of help go again be intentional in going pray and ask God Lord where is it that you want me to go so that I can go and see the people that is in need of help so that I can go and love well but I'm going again Lord stepping out I don't know if we realize actually how Limited we've become, or at least I've, the other day I was driving past Sparda in town. And I told Robin, you know, it's been four months since I was this side of town. You simply don't get out that much anymore. But I'm called to be here, you called to go, ne? Just making a joke. But we don't go out that much. We need to be intentional in going. So that we can see and so that we can help the people that is in need of help. Because they don't know where to go. Ask God, Lord again lead us so that we can go and make disciples. 
So the truth of this passage, and we need to wrestle with this as well. Wherever we are and whatever feelings we have, the fruit of the Spirit is one of that's love. And like we said a couple of times over the last couple of weeks, the fruit of the Spirit manifests best in the opposite situation. The opposite situation. That's when we truly find out that we have love in our hearts or not. Because like we see with this story, when there's no love, it's not that the object is unlovable, but that the subject has no love. We are the subject called to carry that love. The object does not matter. Who the person is, what the circumstances, should not influence the way we feel. We are called to go and love. Because God loved us, we can love. That is the only thing that influences that.